Welcome to Pomegranate Health, a podcast about the culture of medicine. I'm Mick Cavazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Most of you listening will know that there are serious gaps between the average health of Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, and that behind this are generations of disadvantage and trauma. Life expectancy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is 10 years lower than it is for the rest of the population, and the gap has actually increased since 2008. But targets to reduce child mortality and enrol four-year-olds in preschool are on track, thanks to some culturally appropriate maternity and early childhood programs. In the spirit of a 2019 report to the Closing the Gap initiative by the Lowitcher Institute, I want to focus on promising examples of Indigenous-led intervention like this, and also highlight how health professionals can ally with such programs. The RACP has mapped out a best practice guide for its members called the Medical Specialist Access Framework. It addresses the critical fact that Indigenous Australians receive specialist medical services 40% less than non-Indigenous Australians. It's easy to imagine remote communities out in the desert and blame culture clash or the tyranny of distance, but that's only a fraction of the story. 35% of Australia's Indigenous people live in major cities, and 44% in areas classified as regional. Even if tertiary services are more limited in the country, we heard in episode 48 how there are some very effective models of care. So why aren't specialist services reaching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? The reason is usually very straightforward, according to Donna Jeffries, Executive Manager of the Marabinia Brokerage Service. For Indigenous people in particular, one of the greatest barriers and challenges is cash. People don't have money. It's a socio-economic disadvantage. Um, It's, you know, the isolated rural communities which can be hours away from the nearest service provider. They'll go and see the local GP, that's fine. But if the local GP says, oh, look, you need to probably go and have this test or that test, and if you don't have the money, it's too stressful, you don't know how you're going to get there, you have to organise accommodation when you go, so it's just easier not to go because it's too hard, it's too difficult, and they'll just accept, you know, the, the cards that have been dealt for them. The Marabinia program is funded through the Western New South Wales Primary Health Network and absorbs some of the financial shock of seeing a specialist. The process starts at the GP consultation. If a patient is diagnosed with a chronic disease, then the doctor can write up a GP management plan. Where multidisciplinary care is required, then a more detailed team care arrangement is sketched out. A patient with type 2 diabetes, for example, may need to see an endocrinologist, a diabetes educator, a podiatrist and an exercise physiologist. Other conditions Marabinia is focused on are cardiovascular disease, cancer and chronic respiratory or kidney disease. While the GP consults are covered by Medicare, the referrals from then on may have out-of-pocket costs at the clinic and certainly on the road. As you might have heard in episode 48, for serious diagnostic tools and inpatient care, The main referral centres in country New South Wales are Bathurst, Orange and Dubbo. Smaller towns like Burke or Mudgee host visiting clinics for the most needed specialties, but some patients will be hours away by road regardless. And a few ultimately end up in Sydney for the most serious procedures. 
If a GP enlists Marabinia, within 48 hours staff will be in touch with the client to discuss the appointments they need to make and what help they need to get there. Since the health network covers more than half the state, there is a Marabinia staff member drawn from 10 community centres around the region. I met them all at a meeting on Wiradjuri country in a motel conference room in Dubbo. Unfortunately, there was a road crew working just outside the door. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm Desley Mason and I cover the uh, Womble cluster, which is the Dubbo, uh, Wellington and Warren area. Sandra Ritchie, I'm from Condoblin and I cover um, condo parks, Forbes Peak. Possum from Burke, I cover the Gundabooka cluster, which is Burke, Coburn. Kim, I do the Camilleroy cluster, which is Canamble, Gilgandra, Galar. Jake and I cover the Nuno cluster and that consists of Bawarana, Walgut. Um, my name's Joanne Bug. I um, the Windredine cluster, which is Candos, Mudgee. Melissa Flannery, I do the Garion cluster. I cover Cara, Orange. Do I just say hi or just say my name's Gabby Bug? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, my name is Gabby Bug. Uh, this is my first day um, with the Marabinia team and I'll be covering Bathurst area. You'll notice the name, I think everybody introduced the name of the cluster as we went around as well. So they all have Indigenous um, names which represent either landmarks or tribal groups or great warriors where we operate. Yeah, just to, just to get that impression of how, how diverse it, it, mm. it is around here. Mm. To, um, so here about 12% of the population is Aboriginal um, around the Dubbo area. Is that pretty consistent throughout the Central West or, or are there towns that have high, much higher populations? Some of the rural areas, I know Brewarana, for example, we have as high as 67% Indigenous population, whereas um, places like Burke are around 30, 32%. So it sort of fluctuates uh, a little bit. See, hmm. Gadooga B, which is my hometown, is about 90% Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. How big a town is that? Uh, the population is about 250. Mm-hmm. And um, now that you've explained where all the regions that you cover, maybe you can explain how you connect with the, the people that are through, through the GP clinics. Is it a kind of a caseworker approach that you sort of really help them along every... You make the phone calls and get an appointment and so on? Is Our staff do um, you know ring and confirm if a patient's got an appointment with a cardiologist somewhere we'll ask the the GR the specialist rooms if there's a a bill associated with the appointment if there is we'll say okay well we'll be in charge of that can we provide you with a purchase order number you tell us what it's going to cost and we'll take care of that so we do all of those negotiations up front but we don't actually go and make the client's appointment so we're not doing the care coordination role we're just sort of brokering the services that they need feedback from a lot of our clients with that is that they've actually found that quite empowering and they're stepping up to the mark and and taking more responsibility for their own health care and their own health planning which has been quite a good outcome as well yeah, sort of meet, meet him halfway. It's like, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll help you with this if you yep. kind of put the effort in to do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so our program is specifically designed to make sure that the 
GP know what's going on and the client know what's going on and they are the main two people in the driver's seat. The, the meaning of our name, Marabinia, it's like hand outstretchedy. So you're giving somebody a hand, you're not actually doing stuff for them. Thanks to having Indigenous staff serving regions they are connected to, Marabinia has quickly earned the trust of clients. Long-term relationships are important in small communities, particularly when health professionals themselves often rotate through at a high rate. But Marabinia has had to work harder to get the recognition of some GP clinics and providers of specialist services. You'll hear Kim Lees, Joanne Bug and Sandra Ritchie describe some of these encounters. But first, Melissa Flannery explains what a relief it is for Aboriginal people to be able to turn up to a specialist as a paying client. Like, they don't feel, you know, oh God, I've got to tell them I can't afford this. They, they know it's right and they can go. Some of the service providers have been good with the program a lot. We'll take our purchase orders. You'll get some that refuse, that will say, no, we only want credit card payment. Like, some are really blunt and just refuse. Oh, no, sorry, give me a letter to prove that. That's what I've had. Not very often. Um, I'd probably say to one specialist here in Dubbo, like how they used to bulk bill before they when we ring up and just confirm an appointment because they hear that Marabinia's paying for it, oh no, it's $530. So that's the the biggest thing. Why Mm. were you bulk billing before Marabinia come along? They say to me, we only get $91 back from Medicare. We actually get the $530 from you. Where we could be spending that $530 on someone else. I'm just going to jump in here to expand on what some of you may be thinking already. The injustice experienced by Kim is an echo of want throughout the system. Small private practices are losing money when they bulk bill. The Medicare rebate alone just isn't enough to cover the costs of medical indemnity premiums, rent and staff wages. No wonder that specialty services aren't that viable in outer regional areas. As much as a practice might want to enable access to patients that can't afford it, is it for them or the Commonwealth to subsidise this? Or is it the state's responsibility to plug gaps with more outreach from their base hospitals? There's a whole podcast to be done on funding models, but let's get back to the story. Is it still a work in progress to get people to know what Marabinia is and that it referrals off? Like? So there's, there's some service providers that we don't know much about that we want to know more about the program. So We actually invite service providers to our meeting every three months. We have gone out and networked with um, the GPs in the Bathurst area. Melissa came over, um, went and introduced ourselves, um, spoke about the program, took some pamphlets and showed them the new referral and um, what's expected and I think it's helped Mm. heaps like the referrals are coming through now um, correct and and if we have any trouble we'll just ring back and say well you know this isn't signed off or whatever can you do that you build up a relationship with um, certain workers um, the nurses maybe or um, the practice yeah the practice nurse in in the whole western health PHN Am I right, there's about 405 GPs? Yes, that would be correct. 405 over 110 different GP practices. And we have, um, up until the end of March, we've had 
referrals from at least 88 of those practices. So we're well over 80% of practices referring into our program, which, you know, indicates that it is understood and being utilised. So, yeah. That's great news, yeah. It's pretty good. Mm. Um, since we've been operating in November 2016, we've managed to set up over 760 suppliers a multitude of, of different specialists in allied health dotted throughout New South Wales, but we also have some some providers in Melbourne and Adelaide as well because we're sort of border um, some of those communities and there's the closest healthcare specialist is in, in those locations. While Marabinia helps with the costs of seeing a specialist, there are other barriers too for many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. Back in episode 12, we heard how Yolnu people in Arnhem Land look at the hospital not so much as a place of healing, but somewhere you go to die. While the gap in worldviews isn't so stark for most Aboriginal families, there are many ways in which healthcare institutions give a systematic, if unintended, cold shoulder to Indigenous patients. A sign that this might be occurring in your setting could be the high rates of missed follow-ups or discharge against medical advice. Rates of self-discharge among hospitalised Indigenous Australians are 6 to 19 times higher than they are for the rest of the population. Surveyed patients say that it's because health services are impersonal and don't accommodate family obligations. Many remain wary given rude or racist treatment in the past. And the word shame often comes up when Aboriginal people talk about their interactions with mainstream society. It refers to the fear of being judged for not following protocol. You might have experienced something similar when travelling in a foreign country. You're at the bank and you don't understand which forms you need or why everyone is queuing in a certain way, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, this is happening in their own country. There's this assumed social curriculum that most of us take for granted. I can't recommend highly enough the lectures by US academic Robin D'Angelo on deconstructing white privilege, which I've linked to at the website. I like to think I've earned my progress through society, but just how much have I benefited from systems that discriminate along race or gender or class? Conversely, Aboriginal people are often held personally responsible for bringing financial hardship or ill health upon themselves when the same systems may be holding them back. As the Marabinia women describe, this implicit prejudice can make Aboriginal clients cautious about how much they share with health professionals. I asked the team what non-Aboriginal providers could do to make their services more understanding. You'll hear from Melissa Flannery, Possum Swinton, Donna Jeffries, Desley Mason and Kim Lees. Like I know, I've worked in a practice as Aboriginal health practitioner and like people find it hard if it's all mainstream services not being you know you see a familiar face where they feel comfortable and that if they're waiting there with all these white people they get up and leave and there is shame and just uncomfortable I think it's uncomfortable to sit there and you feel judged there's a lot of judgment especially in small towns if you know someone knows one family member did something wrong they think everyone else did it and a lot of judgment I reckon Some people, I think, a lot of Aboriginal people feel inferior and that's where our service is great because we don't just transport that, the client or or the patient who needs help. 
we encourage them to have one support person go with them. So I think that makes a big difference because two sets of ears are better than one. And it's just having that support and not feeling alone in a waiting room, as you say, in amongst everybody else. And I had a gentleman, had um, he was born in Gadooga and lived there and in his adult years he relocated to another community that you could access services better but not having any sort of support for that. He wasn't getting to appointments and things because he couldn't afford it. His health was suffering so he relocated back to Gadooga and his niece said you know it made significant difference to his health because of that service that we provided for him, so which is pretty good. Yeah, so, so even though it was a bit further, just the fact yes, that he had yeah, a safety net there. Yeah, you know, his health has improved since then, so, yeah, which is great. When you're um, working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they a lot of the times people are, are on guard, and I think as part of a team, many of us that are sitting around this table, in the area that we operate, we all have really good, strong community networks and family networks. As soon as people can start joining the dots, the barriers and the walls seem to go down and people are more likely to engage. They're more likely to share their experiences, whether they're good or bad with you and it's like a, a, a trust is formed. Or sometimes um, if you've got an Aboriginal health worker, they can, um, the Aboriginal health worker can explain to the patient um, what's happening because sometimes jargon is a big thing with Aboriginal people, uh, especially elders, don't understand it. Yeah, and there was a study in the Medical Journal of Australia that showed how there was a direct link between the number of Aboriginal health workers per population and their adherence to diabetes services, how many appointments they went to and how, you know. When, when, when you guys are calling up the, the various clinics and making appointments, are there, you know, are there some clinics that you prefer to call up because they're easier to deal with, they understand culture better, or do, you know, do you, do you have a a blacklist or whatever or, or does it just depend on who's nearest by or I've had a um a client report back to me she was a Christian lady her and her husband um were down in Sydney and she has really severe respiratory disease um and her husband was getting quite angry <laughs> because the the healthcare professionals come in and they'd say look we know you're from Barwarana. Now you just need to tell us how many drinks and how many smokes you have. And these people, like they've been Christians for years, I've never known either of them to drink or smoke or anything. It's just really condescending. And and that's can be typical of some of the stories that get fed back to us. Because blackfellas are not shy in coming forward. If, so, if they have a bad experience, they'll let us know and particularly because we're all Indigenous as well and you know we'll we'll be aware of it if it happens more than once well then we all contact the the practice or the service provider or whoever it is and so hopefully you know we're we're providing that little bit of not um not cultural awareness training but we will highlight and we'll bring to the attention if some of our clients have had a bad experience so 
Yeah, I wouldn't call it a back blacklist or, or a, a white list or whatever, but um, but That's we are. That's the wrong are, words, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> if, if there's been a bad experience, we'll we'll d definitely we'll find out about it. Uh, yes, um, experiencing it personally myself. Of course, I've got um, issues with my liver. Some kind of um, it's a fatty liver, and that and they say, are you a heavy drinker? And I said, sorry, sir, I don't drink. My last drink was uh, 30 years ago. I never was a heavy drinker at all. It might have been once, once a month. And they, that's what they assumed it was. I was a full-blown alcoholic. And that's the hurtful part of it. Mm. And I think another thing to get through to, to specialists and that too is how isolated some of our communities are, how much harder it is for them to get to these appointments. So if they can try to ensure that they, you know, if they've got an appointment, not to change it. You know, sometimes I know it can't be helped, but can you really look at where that person's coming from and what it's taken for them to get to where where they need that help? If, if you're going to have to change anybody or put anybody back on the list, can it be somebody who can access it more easily than our clients? Well, you have, like, a hospital that puts a client sitting there waiting for surgery. Hospital will say, no, we're not going to operate today. We're going to operate tomorrow. Comes that day, they put it back again. They put it off, put it off, put it off. We supported someone down there for about a month yeah. waiting for surgery. So it's about $2,000 for a week that we were supporting them to stay down there. And it's very frustrating because they're away from home, they're away from family, but you can't go home because we'll, cause if he did go home, he'd be put back for another year for an operation. What do you do? Yeah. Because a lot of the people from out at Woolmaringal and Gadooga, we, they, don't have, they don't have public transport, and that, so they rely on family members, you know, to get them to and from appointments. And a family member that's come along has given up a day of work to... to that is correct. You can't always guarantee they're going to be able to take you again later on, so... Mm. But even though you, we've supplied them with accommodation, that they've got to buy food on top of that, yeah. and it's, you know, you're thinking it's not cheap, you've still got to have meals yeah. and things and... And, 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 and what's it like to go, go into the big smoke for clients. Scary, scary for me. I won't drive there, no way. And, and I, one client and that, um, that lives in Dubbo, she won't go to Sydney by herself because she's terrified. She's terrified of getting off the train and if something's going to happen or terrified of getting lost. Um, a lot of Aboriginal people, and I'm one of them, don't know how to catch buses and trains in Sydney. <laughs> Yeah. How do you do that? You need an opal card first. Yeah. Well, well, if you say opal card to me, I'd look for Lightning Ridge to go look for an opal. See? So if you say to someone, oh, you need an opal card, uh, what is that? You know, where do I get it from? And one good thing with Murrabinia is that, and, and a lot of them love it, is cab vouchers. Another excellent service that works in with us is um, Country, Care. Country Care Link, where they'll, if you can give them 48 hours notice, 
it's a volunteer group. Um, run Sisters by Sisters Sister Ch- of Charity, and they'll organise um, somebody to meet you at the train or the plane and take you to your accommodation. And they've said they couldn't be more helpful. And it costs nothing, and it's for country people, not just Aboriginal people, mm. but for all country people. And it's great to have resources that you can work together with that can help us out as well, because that saves on our funding a little too. So, And it just makes the trip a little more comfortable for them. Just one thing that um, that would be helpful for specialists and GPs and, and people that work with Indigenous people is to just not be afraid. Like, we're people like everybody else, so just treat us like everybody else and leave all the assumptions and any prejudgments or whatever at the door and just treat us as you would, your mother, your brother, your sister, your father, whatever. So that would be a, a big hint from me. I know one of the um, accommodations down here, because mine's come from Condo down here sometimes for treatment, and um, one of the accommodations down here, they look, they just, they love it. Mm-hmm. He goes out and sits out with the, with the um, clients and have a cup of coffee with them and everything, and they just love going to the Atlas down here. The Western New South Wales Primary Health Network that Marabinia falls in is one of 38 PHNs across the country that were established to respond to the specific needs of each locality. But this specific model for investing Commonwealth integrated team care funding is unique in design and in its effectiveness. Every community is different and one of the principles of the RACP's Medical Specialist Access Framework is that models of care need to be context dependent. But first and foremost, Services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will thrive best where community leadership is included in the design and delivery. Marabinia is an exemplary case study of these principles. To bid for the government contract, Donna Jeffries and her colleagues brought together established and respected providers of Aboriginal health services, namely Mari Ma in Burke and Bila Muji in Dubbo. Their proposal was considered unfeasible at first, but Donna describes how the business case was made and how Marabinia has earned a new round of funding to continue to reach more people. For a number of years prior to the um, PHNs, a lot of the funding was actually being spent on care coordination. So it was up to 70-80% of the money that was allocated for the program was actually spent on wages, program running costs, office space, vehicles and that sort of thing. And they wanted to try things differently give it to an Aboriginal corporation to basically put Aboriginal health into Aboriginal hands, which is what you have with Marabinia. And the way that we operate, we spend, we have a 50-50 split, 50-50 commitment, so 50% of our annual budget will be spent on um, staff and program costs, and 50% of our budget is put towards clients' um, supplementary services. Another way that we were able to really save on setup costs and things for a brand new program was to actually use the infrastructure that's already available in communities. Like where we could, we've co-located with Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations such as Outback Division of General Practice out in Burke. Um, so they, these um, organisations, they already have offices, they already have desks, they have chairs, they have telephones. All we needed were um, new employees 
a mobile phone and a laptop and a good database to collect all of our information and, and track our services. So to set the program up doesn't take rocket science. Um, we've worked really hard to keep it simple and the benefits of that is that we can sit and easily talk about the program and explain it to our potential clients but also to our healthcare partners across the region. So it's, it's been quite remarkable. We started with 600 um, clients in November 2016 and up until the end of um, last December, December 2018, we'd serviced over 5,050 people. So we average every three months between 950 and 1,000 new referrals and we're organising up to five and a half, almost 6,000 support services for those, those referrals that we get. Well, in terms of measures that you can collect through all of the usual you know, health system, do you think it will be possible to measure that impact in terms of d disease and wellbeing, or is it too hard? I think over time, um, over you know, the coming years, we'll be able to get a more accurate measure of um, people's healthcare status. I know um, we, you know, there's anecdotal evidence there that people are actually getting better because of Marabinia. There was a lady back in our, when we first started, I think we were, she's a client of Dubbo Aboriginal Medical Service, um, and she was on the public guy health screening agenda. But she needed, required these specific injections every two weeks, but the public clinic was only available every six weeks. Um, anyway, the GP thought, well, we'll refer to Marabinia and we'll see. Um, and we said, of course, we can step in and send her off to a private provider. And, um, you know, the feedback we got from her GP was that it saved a sight. And because of that, she was able to continue working and, you know, she still had a, a quality of life and was able to contribute looking after her family. So, you know, it's sort of the work that we're doing, it provides not only healing our mob, but it's also we're able to contribute to back to the whole community through a program such as this. It's the only one of its type in Australia, but really there's absolutely no reason that a program like this could not expand further or even be Australia-wide. Mm. Many thanks to all the staff at Marabinia for contributing to this episode of Pomegranate Health. The names are Donna Jeffries, Desley Mason, Sandra Ritchie, Possum Swinton, Jake Bloomfield, Joanne and Gabby Bug and Melissa Flannery. Invaluable feedback came from Masita Ma, who leads the RSCP's Aboriginal Initiatives, and Uncle Terry Williams from our Consumer Advisory Group. And as always, thanks to the tireless members of the podcast editorial group. Please go to recp.edu.au slash podcast to see how the Medical Specialist Access Framework can guide more equitable delivery of care to Indigenous patients. There are several inspiring case studies from around the country and from different healthcare settings. At the website, there are also links to e-learning courses on cultural safety and also those lectures I mentioned earlier. 
If you like the show, please tell a friend how they can subscribe to Pomegranate Health. Any podcasting app will do. Or there's also an emails alert list for the late adopters. Finally, it's worth reflecting that the 170-year-old sandstone building that houses the RECP stands on land the traditional custodians called Kadi. The Kadi people, or Kadigal, were almost completely wiped out by a smallpox outbreak in the year after colonisation. This podcast acknowledges the wealth of knowledge that has been lost, but also the thriving culture being passed on by elders past and present. The RACP supports medical graduates and trainees identifying as Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander or Māori to undertake physician training. There have been 20 recipients of the scholarship since it started in 2015. That's all for now. I'm Mick Cavazzini.